reading again about the resurrection, 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to be preaching on verse 8, but I'm going to read it in context, verses 8 through 13. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would minister your word to our hearts. May it not just be an academic exercise, but Father, may our lives be, continue to be transformed as we uh, sing your word, pray your word, as we uh, preach your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in 1984, Robert Savage said something that really stuck with me. He said, if we could forget our troubles as easily as we forget our blessings, what a difference it would make. If we could forget our troubles as quickly as we forget our blessings, how different things would be. Um, forgetfulness is one of the chief robbers of faith and hope and uh, of uh, activity for the Lord. Uh, we forget the many blessings that God has given to us in the past and tend to focus only on the things that we don't have. Uh, we, we forget his promises. Uh, we forget his doctrines, which contradict the emotional states that we're in. And it's not just us. It appears to have been a common trait of uh, Christians in Bible times as well. When the women arrived at the tomb on Resurrection Day, the angels told them, He is not here. He is risen. And seeing the surprise of the women, one of the angels said, Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. So they were commanded to remember, and the text goes on to say, And they remembered his words, and that remembrance instantly ushered them into joy and faith and action. Matthew Henry coined a word for us ministers in his commentary on 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, he called us remembrancers, okay? People who help others to remember. He said, the, this office of remembrancers is the office of the best ministers, even the apostles themselves. They are the Lord's remembrancers, Isaiah 62, verse 6. And uh, Matthew Henry goes on to say that we ministers need to repeatedly remind our members of God's promises why? Because we tend to live below those promises. Uh, we need to remind them of uh, God's doctrines because many times our lives are not consistent with those doctrines. We need to remind God's people about his commandments because many times we neglect our duties. Jesus had to repeatedly remind his disciples about his death and resurrection. And they repeatedly forgot. In fact, right at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, he told them, hey, I've come to die and uh, to be raised. And uh, verse 22 says, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. 
So they remembered, and that remembering renewed their faith. It changed them. So it's not enough to preach a doctrine one time. We need to be preaching doctrines over and over, and that's especially true of such an important doctrine as the resurrection of Jesus. And because of the importance of this doctrine, Paul reminds us in our text, this is 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Remember. We're going to be remembering today uh, one of the greatest acts of redemptive history, the resurrection of the Messiah. And it's my prayer that as we go through this uh, a time of remembrancing, that uh, these, these memories would instill new faith and hope and action within us. Paul gives us three reasons in this text why we are remembering this glorious act of God. Uh, first of all, we're called to remember the resurrection because it is an incredibly important doctrine. It is a foundational doctrine. There is no Christianity without the doctrine of the resurrection. And there are three subpoints here that uh, tell us why we should consider this to be so important. First of all, it was a fact anticipated in the Old Testament. Now, that's only hinted at here. It's hinted at the words of the seed of David. Now, if you understand Jewish theology in the first century, there were two streams of Jewish belief. There was one stream that had only a victorious Messiah. They could not conceive of the Messiah uh, at all suffering uh, or dying or being raised. And then there was another stream that said, no, the Messiah is going to descend as a real man, but also there's evidence that they understood that he was God. He's going to descend as a descendant of David. He's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to rise again on the third day. A lot of Christians don't realize that all Christian doctrine really was, at least in seed form, uh, present before the time of Christ, even the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, I have commentaries uh, by Jews on the book of Genesis that some people date all the way back to the Babylonian exile that are so Trinitarian. They clearly give an exposition of the Trinity. And the same is true of uh, the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. In your bulletins, the first two pictures that are on the top there are pictures of a, uh, a recent discovery in Israel. It's a stone called the Gabriel Stone. And it is dated to the first century BC. And it represents one of these streams of Jewish theology. It's messianic uh, throughout that uh, Gabriel stone. And this stone talks about a Messiah who would suffer, die, and rise on the third day. And there are other uh, historical documents that show uh, the same thing. They knew the Old Testament scriptures that speak of Christ's death and resurrection. And this is why it was so it was so surprising to me to see Dr. William Lane Craig argue that the Old Testament did not speak about the resurrection of a Messiah. And even more weirdly, he said that the scriptures that the apostles appeal to to prove the resurrection don't talk about the resurrection. Uh, for example, of Psalm 16, he says, the Psalm's not about the rising of the dead, but avoiding death, exclamation mark. Well, that raised the ire of some people. And um, um, he just basically is accusing the apostles of bad proof texting, yet he teaches at Biola. Uh, the evangelical church, in my opinion, has just become absolutely nutso. 
Anyway, when somebody asked Dr. Craig why the apostles would use a passage that has nothing to do with the resurrection to try to teach the resurrection, here's his response. The answer is that they wanted to show that Jesus' resurrection was in some sense a fulfillment of Scripture, and since the Old Testament has almost nothing to say about the resurrection, they had to apply novel interpretations to passages that weren't really about the resurrection. Now, if that sort of hermeneutic strikes you as dishonest, understand that for an ancient Jewish exegete, discerning much deeper meanings in the Scripture was normal procedure and would be seen as a strength of one's view. Giving a novel interpretation to familiar passages was seen as providing additional insight into Scripture. And I say, no, absolutely no. It's really that kind of uh, nonsense, it's liberalism that's creeping into the evangelical church, that is the strange teaching. Paul is quite clear in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, that Jesus, quote, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Even the specificity of the third day has to be in the Old Testament Scriptures, not something that's just read in there. Uh, Let me give you a few of those Old Testament passages. Hosea 6, verse 1, laments that some saints had died. But verse 2 says that they would rise and live on the third day in the sight of the Messiah. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. And then it goes on to talk about the gradual increase, like from dawn to noonday, the gradual increase of the messianic kingdom. And so Christ and a handful of Old Testament saints would rise on the third day as a kind of first fruits. And what Hosea is doing is not coming up with something new. He's just giving an exposition of the festival of first fruits that had prophesied the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. And there are many passages that uh, teach about the festival of first fruits. Let me give you just a few Exodus chapters 23 and chapters 34. Leviticus chapters 2 and 23, Numbers chapters 18, 28, and 32, and there are other passages that talk about the festival of firstfruits, and it clearly portrays the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. Let me just go through the three days of, of that. Passover represents his death, unleavened bread represents his burial, and then firstfruits represents his resurrection, along with a handful, it's a firstfruits, of saints from the Old Testament. Isaiah 26, 19 says the same thing. Isaiah pre-records the words of the coming Messiah as saying this, your dead shall live, together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. I don't think you could get a clearer statement to the resurrection of Jesus and a few Old Testament saints with him. And that was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 through 53, which says this, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, because he's the first one to rise, right? After his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Uh, Matthew Henry on that passage says it was the martyrs who were raised. They were given a special privilege of being a part of that first fruits resurrection. So here's the point. The apostles were not using uh, clever or bad exegesis to try to get deeper meanings out of the scripture that weren't there in the first place. Uh, And anybody who says otherwise is really putting a slander against the apostles. 
using ordinary grammatical historical exegesis, you can clearly demonstrate from the Old Testament that the Messiah would come from the seed of David and before him from Boaz, Judah, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Noah, Seth, and Adam. And it's my contention that you can even find the resurrection of Jesus in the earliest book of the Bible, Genesis. For example, Genesis it's only hinted at, but in Genesis 3.15, it talks about Satan kind of biting the heel of Christ. In other words, it's going to be very painful, but then it talks about subsequently Christ will destroy the serpent, crush his head, which implies he's going to be alive, right? after his death. So it's only hinted at there, but there are other passages. Psalm 2-7 is interpreted by Acts 13-33 as a prophecy of Christ's resurrection when it says, today I have begotten you. David prophesied of Christ's death and resurrection when he said, my flesh also shall rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Psalm 22, I think it's the resurrection that divides that psalm. Sufferings of Christ, the second part, after the resurrection, the glories of his millennial kingdom. And so, first of all, I would say the importance of this doctrine can be seen by the number of times that the Old Testament prophesies that Jesus would not only die, he has to die to deal with our sins, but he has to live in order to give us life. The next phrase in 2 Timothy 2.8 says, was raised from the dead. And that shows that what was predicted in the Old Testament was fulfilled in history. And the apostles and many other witnesses testified to that. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 15 on these witnesses. That he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by the, all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus is so strong that, believe it or not, there are some Jewish rabbis today who don't even bother trying to disprove this doctrine. They just shrug their shoulders and they say, well, yeah, he was raised from the dead. A lot of other weird things have happened in history too. Okay, <laughs> that's their attitude. Uh, one of those rabbis is uh, Pinkas Lapid, uh, who says that the evidence for Christ's resurrection is a overwhelming historical fact. And uh, that's exactly what Paul's saying here. It is an undeniable fact. Next, the importance of his resurrection can be seen by the tense of the verb Paul uses in this verse. Uh, the perfect tense, we don't really have that in the English, but in the Greek, a perfect tense is dealing with something that happens in the past and continues to have a relevance uh, on into the present. In other words, he was raised, he continues to be a living savior. So the perfect tense implies he didn't die again, he remains raised. So how important is the resurrection of Jesus? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said that there could be no Christianity without it. He says, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. 
So we're called to remember the resurrection of Jesus because it is critically important fact for our Christian faith. And by the way, that's why we worship on Sunday, not Saturday. Uh, the Old Testament prophesied this change from the Sabbath being on the seventh day to being on the, the first day. And uh, the end of each gospel account, in fact, uh, uh, one of them is very, very clear, a definitive passing away of the sa Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, and then it says, on the first day Sabbath, that's the literal Greek, not, doesn't use the word for week, it uses the word for Sabbath, first day Sabbath, Jesus rose from the grave. Now here is the interesting thing. It cannot possibly be referring to an Old Covenant Sabbath because first fruits was never a Sabbath in the Old Testament. This is a New Covenant Sabbath that happened. So here's what the point is. Now that the work of redemption is finished, we start, just like Adam did, we start our week by resting in his finished work. We celebrate on the first day of the week because we're looking backwards to the finished work of redemption. In the Old Testament, they celebrated on the end of the week because they're looking forward to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what 1 Corinthians 16 says. This is the literal Greek. As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do, on the first day Sabbath, let each one of you lay something aside. So the resurrection, every time we celebrate the Lord's Day on Sunday, what we are doing is we're testifying to the resurrection. Every Sunday is a resurrection day, really. And so the, the, the very change of this Sabbath day celebration uh, testifies to the importance that this is a world-changing significant fact. It's like a hinge on which all of history swings. And... Um, Christ's body was the first evidence that all things are beginning to be made new in the new covenant because he, his body is the first old covenant reality to be glorified. Okay, it's the first part of the new creation order. Okay, this brings us to the second main point, second main reason we're to remember, and that is that its transforming power continues to be a power at work in us. Where his death atoned for sins and his burial disposed of our sins, his resurrection enables us to overcome the effects, the negative effects of sin in our life. It gives us hope. And so it's not just a doctrine to believe, it's, it's, a, it's a reality that changes us. Romans 8.11 says it this way, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. To me, this is astonishing. If the spirit raised Jesus, which he did, and if the spirit dwells in us as he does, that means that the same resurrection power that was bringing this beginning of the new creation is at work in our mortal bodies, if we will claim it by faith. It's an astounding power that we have accessible. And so again, this means there, this makes the, the resurrection not just a doctrine. It has relevance to our day-to-day -day living. And the context of our verse develops the extent to which this resurrection power continues to be at work. Let's take a look at the context. Verses 1 through 3 
uh, show that it gives us power to stand strong for Christ. And actually, if we had time, I could show you in chapter 1, Paul's already talked about the resurrection and how that resurrection life had brought life and immortality to life, and he shows how that good news enabled him to endure suffering and to have hope to stand fast to experience the power of the Spirit in his life. Was that just a mental trick? No. It was the present power of Jesus in his life. Well, chapter 2 picks up with a therefore and applies the same reality to Timothy. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So if grace resides in a living Christ, not a dead Christ, but a living Christ, then that grace can enable Timothy to stand just as strongly as Paul was able to stand. You see, Timothy was weak and fearful. He was timid. And Paul reminded him, hey, it has nothing to do with personality. If you're united to Christ and his resurrection, you too can stand strong. And then verse 2 says that Timothy can train other faithful men the same things that he's learned so that they can train other faithful men. So generation after generation of disciples can experience exactly the same um, power of the risen Lord that Paul did. Verse 3 shows this resurrection power can enable Timothy to endure hardship. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. A man who has um, the living, resurrected Jesus working his grace through us by the Holy Spirit can stand strong in every circumstance. And let me try to illustrate that. There have been a number of people who wondered, what in the world are these spiders doing on the outline? Well, let me tell you <laughs> what they're doing. When I was a child, I was fascinated by water spiders. Uh, sometimes they're called diving bell spiders. And this strange spider lives almost all of its life underwater, even though it cannot breathe underwater. How in the world does it achieve this? Well, it weaves a, a sack uh, of silk and, and it's going to live in that sack, but how does it live there? Well, it goes up to the surface, and its hairy body immediately, it's just like a, a, about a second that it's on the surface, and then it comes back down. It collects air, uh, little air bubbles, and it flicks those air bubbles into this sack, fills the sack with air, and then it lives inside of that sack. Now, the sack also acts sort of as a gill that can get a little bit of oxygen from the water. Scientists are still trying to figure out how that works. But um, the spider mates underwater, lays eggs underwater, eats underwater, rests, pretty much lives most of its life underwater. The very waters that could spell its death without that oxygen protect it from other play, prey. And it briefly surfaces to replenish its oxygen supply, uh, they say, about once a day. Okay? Well, Christ's resurrection power that he gives to each saint enables us to stand strong for him in the hostile waters of this world and to thrive and to prosper in those waters. Uh, verses 4 through 5 show a second way in which this resurrection power transforms us. It gives us the power to strive for Christ. Standing strong is not enough. We must strive to advance his kingdom just like these water spiders propagate 30 to 70 spiderlings uh, every few weeks and uh, take dominion of the underwater invertebrates and water larvae and mites and tadpoles and small fish and other underwater creatures. Well, Paul 
calls us to strive on behalf of the kingdom of heaven. Let's read those verses, verses uh, four and following. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Both warfare and athletics involve enormous exertion. And it's exertion according to rules of a different kingdom. We are not called to be at peace with this world. We are called to colonize this world. And he doesn't call us to exert our own fleshly efforts in this. Paul calls us to strive by the power that flows from the resurrected Savior. And I think the Lord's Prayer says it all. Thy kingdom come. Well, I guess we use New King James. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's one thing to stand strong, you know, during tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. But Romans 8.37 calls us to do more than just stand. It calls us to be what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. And so every time we win a pagan to the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven grows in this hostile environment. And it has been growing nonstop, we saw last week, from a tiny mustard seed into a huge kingdom that has 2.5 billion Christians in it today. And it's going to continue to grow until there is nothing left on earth but the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, or as 1 Corinthians 15 words it, every enemy being placed under his feet. Here's the problem. We're forgetful, right? That's why we need ministers to be remembrancers. If we forget, we will start to pass out from lack of oxygen, so to speak, and we're going to die. Like the water spider, we must continually connect with the kingdom of heaven. We must daily derive our spiritual air from the living Christ and his heavenly kingdom. That alone will give us the energy to conquer and spread. Third, the living Savior gives power to serve each other faithfully. Verse 6 says, The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Now, as dominion creatures, we want to know if there's going to be an ROI on our efforts, you know, return on investment. We want to know, is it worthwhile? And Paul says, yes, it is worthwhile. There's going to be eternal dividends in heaven. There's going to be benefits right here on earth. It is so worthwhile. And I kind of like the farmer image a lot better than the spider image <laughs> anyway. But uh, Jesus uses the farmer analogy in John 15 saying this, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And so to summarize the second main point, why should we remember the resurrection of Jesus? 
because that doctrine reminds us it's not enough to have head knowledge about facts. We need the abiding presence of Christ and his kingdom with us. And when we have his presence, he transforms not only us, but he transforms others through us. We must be bringing the air of the kingdom of heaven into our earthly realm like those water spiders. Now the third um, main point, third reason Paul wants us to remember the resurrection is that it is foundational to the good news we are called to share with others. Verse 8 again, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Now the word gospel means good news. It's good news to believers, but it's bad news actually to those who reject Christ because it reminds them they've got a living person who rules the universe to whom they are going to be accountable. And so in verse 8, verses 8 and following, those committed to this doctrine are also committed to fight against the enemies of Christ with spiritual weapons. He first of all says, even though enemies of Christ oppose this doctrine of the resurrection, Paul brings that message for the sake of the elect. Okay, he doesn't worry about those who will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. His focus is on the kingdom and upon the elect who are not yet joined to that kingdom. Verses 9 through 10. For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The word of Christ is not chained because Christ is not chained. So what happened when Paul preached the gospel when he was outside of prison? The kingdom expanded. What happened when Paul preached the, the gospel inside of prison? Well, pr fellow prisoners came to Christ. Guards came to Christ. And those guards were taking the gospel in places Paul couldn't even go to. So the kingdom of heaven expanded. And so Paul elsewhere says that he, the victory of Christ is always manifested through him. It can be. Christ stands behind his word. And when you have a message that Jesus himself stands behind, it gives you what it takes to deliver the message despite opposition. And that gospel message or good news can be summarized in four words, death, life, reign, and faithfulness. Verses 11 through 13. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so that whole paragraph speaks eloquently to the benefits of our union with Jesus. What happened and continues to happen to Jesus happens to those who put their faith in him. So when he died, we died. We legally died. Our old identity is no longer our identity. It should not control us. And so we need to remind ourselves of that fact. A convert out of the LGBTQ or a homosexual community is not a gay Christian. That was his old identity. He died to that old identity. His new identity is now in Christ. So that's a critical word, death. Christ's death means our death to our old life. But the gospel also has the word life. When Jesus came to life, we legally came to life in him. And then Paul uses a tense that indicates, hey, that life is going to continue to manifest itself in our lives. And so it gives us encouragement. 
when we feel hopeless, lifeless, without power, we can call out for his life to be made manifest in us, and it will. And then comes the word reign. Those who endure, and all of the elect will endure, they persevere because Christ preserves us, so those who endure will reign with him. We don't just submit to Christ's reign. We are given authority to reign in time and in eternity. Astoundingly, Ephesians 2.6 says that God has already, quote, raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We right now are seated with Jesus on his throne. That's just amazing to think about. This is why Revelation 2, verses 26 through 27 says that those who are overcomers by faith are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, they rule with Christ, and they are even given that rod of iron to smash nations that are in opposition to Christ so that those nations will turn to Christ uh, themselves. It's astounding. Everything that happens to Christ happens to those who cling to Christ in faith. We have the privilege of reigning. And I would really encourage you, when you're praying, don't pray from, and I do it, uh, pray from an attitude down here, but pray as those who are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, who have been given authority by Christ. It changes your prayer life. But if we deny him, and that's in the future tense, indicating that would be the denier's future state, a state that's impossible for a genuine believer, but if we persevere in denying him, he will deny us. This is a sober part of our Christianity. You cannot survive without Jesus any more than a water spider can survive without air. To deny Jesus is to deny your eternal life, and we need to be reminded of that fact. We need to go to Jesus throughout the day for air. Yes, God preserves the elect, but he does so by making the elect persevere in their faith. Without perseverance or endurance, there is no evidence of faith, okay? A water spider who does not come up for air dies. A Christian who does not seek those things which are above dies, shows himself to not be a true Christian. The fourth word of the gospel is faithful, and it helps to balance what I've just said. Just because you might have temporarily been unfaithful like Peter was does not mean you have forever denied him. God remains faithful to us because he cannot deny himself, and to cast off his seed would be to deny himself, okay? So I, I think that those verses there are a marvelous summary of the good news of Christ's death, resurrection, reign, and faithfulness to his own. And remembering those words, I think, gives us stability and balance and perseverance. Now, I'm going to end with one more thought. Paul calls us to remember the resurrection because it's essential to the ongoing health of the church. Paul wants Timothy to remind his congregation of these facts. Verse 14, remind them of these things. So the congregation must also remember. And Paul once again repeats the idea that just as the resurrection was transformational for him, was transformational for Timothy, it could be transformational for everyone in the church. So in verse 14, he calls them to not strive over the wrong things. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Some Christians are always arguing about non-kingdom things, right? We need to know what is worth fighting over and dying over and what is inconsequential to his kingdom. Verses 15 through 19, 
show that there is a division between true believers and enemies of Christ right within the church. Uh, this past week, I was really grossed out by it, but uh, Apologia's, uh, one of its uh, latest episodes, was exposing the dangerous and the counterfeit Christianity of Brandon Robertson, a person who's just so excitedly uh, preaching, telling us he's, he's, he's talking about Lazarus in the tomb. And Jesus says to Lazarus, come out. And he's saying, this is what Jesus says to the LGBTQ community. I'm fine with you just the way you are. Come out of the closet. It's just blasphemy. And the text has nothing whatsoever to say about that kind of a novel exegesis. So people like Brandon Robertson are parasites that need to be cast out of the church. Just as water spiders must protect their air kingdom from invaders, church discipline must re, be reinstituted against the enemies of Christ who sneak into the church. And certainly those who deny the doctrine of the resurrection are to be rejected out of hand. Starting to read at verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So he is saying, those who deny a literal resurrection are not his, however much they may protest to the contrary. There are some doctrines that are absolutely critical, must be guarded. And sadly, there are those who deny the bodily resurrection of Christ within evangelicalism, even within the Reformed camp, exactly in the same way that Jehovah's Witnesses do. The truth of Christ's resurrection brings division, the right kind of division. And since those truly united to the Savior will act accordingly, it eventually weeds out the tares. Or to use the analogy of vessels, he says in verses 20 through 21, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. But even more importantly, Paul continues with personal sins that contradict who we really are. Just as viruses and bacteria can destroy a water spider's ability to function properly underwater, these sins will take us out if we do not fight vigorously against them by Christ's resurrection grace. Verses 22 through 26. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Are there predators of water spiders? Yes, there are. Herons and frogs will eat them. But the worst killers of spiders are internal parasites, bacteria, and viruses. 
And I would say that the worst killers of our Christian faith are the internal sins that we refuse to confess, refuse to deal with, refuse to cast under the feet of King Jesus. Colossians 2, 20 through 23 says, if we died with Christ, we should put off the commandments and doctrines of men. Chapter 3 says, if we were raised with Christ, we should seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Everything we need to live our lives on earth successfully must come from heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Daily we need to be praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By the way, seeking those things which are above, some people say, oh, it makes you so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. No, it's the exact opposite. If you keep reading in Colossians after that admonition to seek those things which are above, he goes on to show how that transforms everything we do in our bodies, in our marriages, in our families, in our businesses, and in our culture. It's transformational. It's the kingdom of heaven invading the earth. And so just as the water spider is surrounded by air in a hostile environment, may we be surrounded by the things that come from Christ. He is risen, and this living reality needs to impact all that we think, say, and do. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word that reminds us and continues to remind us of the things that are important. I pray that you would help us to prioritize the things that control and dictate our lives. May we seek those things which are above. May we be driven by kingdom realities. Yes, even in the work that we do, whether it's computer science or whatever, uh, may we seek your wisdom from on high. We know, Father, that uh, your kingdom invades absolutely everything on earth, and it's our desire that we will be a part of the colonization of earth by the kingdom of heaven. May your kingdom come. May your will be done more and more in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in this uh, sin-struck world. And we pray this for your sake and in the name of our King and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.